Hi, this is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. In a showdown over anti-corruption reforms, Peruvian President Martín Vizcarra dissolved Congress in September, a move that Peru's constitutional court ratified on January 14th. Now, on January 26th, Peru holds special elections to vote in a new legislature that'll be in power for just 18 months. Though voters resoundingly backed Vizcarra's move to get rid of the previous legislature, they're not particularly enthused about the prospects of a new one. Apathy ahead of the vote is running high. In this episode, my colleague Holly K. Sunderland spoke with Universidad del Pacífico's Alonso Gormendi about why that is and what this incoming session could accomplish in the next year and a half. An expert in constitutional law, Gormendi also explains how Peru got in this position in the first place and how its Magna Carta is holding up amid the strain. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Hello, so my name is Holly Sonneland. I am here with Professor Alonso Gurmendi. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, uh, Peru is holding special legislative elections on Sunday, January 26th to replace all 130 members of its unicameral Congress to serve out the last 18 months of the current legislative session. So how did we end up here? Right. The main issue at discussion in in the actual closing of Congress, the dissolution of Congress, it was about um, Vizcarra uh, wanting to reform the way judges are elected for the Constitutional Tribunal. Um, this was one of several reform attempts that Vizcarra had uh, tried to do because Peru is right now, uh, like beneath this crisis, there's another crisis, which is the crisis of corruption. And so Vizcarra arrives at the presidency without much support in Congress. So his, his way of, of having support for his presidency has been to position himself as a, as a a fighter against corruption. So this uh, reform of the Constitutional Tribunal was his way of saying, I'm fighting uh, corruption. I want to I change how the country works. And we'll say he arrived at the presidency by succession because his uh, predecessor, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, had to resign over corruption allegations. Yes, it's funny. It's difficult to go back orderly because everything you say requires a previous explanation. <laughs> um, it's okay. We'll get there. <laughs> Right. So the September 10th dissolution was because of the reform of um, of the Constitutional Tribunal. This was the latest battle. Uh, there are previous battles, including trying to modify the way that um, parties uh, finance their themselves, because there, there's a lot of scandals involving political parties receiving illegal contributions from companies and foreign governments and Odebrecht, you know, dirty money, that was changed into a, uh, a binding law that says that that is a crime. There was another set of reforms that also garnered a, a confidence question that was granted, but then they, the, the Fujimorista-controlled government modified the, the legislation mm-hmm. to fit their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And for those who might not be familiar, what is the confidence question in Peru? 
Right. So it's a particularly Peruvian institution, I think, because our, our constitution is a little bit French, uh, a little bit American, a little bit of everything. Um, it's like uh, in, in constitutional law, there's like um, this idea that countries can have a Supreme Court or a constitutional tribunal or countries can have a prime minister or a president. Peru has a constitutional tribunal, a Supreme Court, a prime minister and a president. So we have a little bit of everything. So the idea is that um, because we are semi-presidential, not exactly presidential, Congress needs to be able to um, impeach or censure the president's ministers or policies in the, in the French style. It is the idea that the president rules with the consent of the government, with the representatives of the people. So every time the president appoints a new prime minister, which is in the U.S., the equivalent would be a chief of staff. Every time a new prime minister is appointed, he needs to go to Congress, present his plan, and request confidence of, of, of Congress. If he gets it, then the government continues. If he doesn't, then he needs to resign, and uh, the, the president has to appoint a new prime minister with a new cabinet. When confidence is granted for a, a cabinet, some specific policies may be more important than others for the, for the government. So they, the government may request confidence of Congress for a specific policy. Say, for example, anti-corruption reform. I, the president would be telling Congress, I cannot be a good president if we don't pass this reform. And usually, Congresses bide their time, and they choose that one topic where they can give a vote of no confidence, and that's it. Because they know that if they give a second vote of no confidence, then Congress is dissolved. That has never happened. The, the September 1 is the first time it's happened in our history. So when you read the, the constitutional debates uh, in, for the 1993 constitution, it was kind of clear that what Fujimori wanted was the ability to dissolve Congress on a regular basis. He had done so in 1992 with the famous self-coup. Uh, he closed Congress because Congress was controlled by the opposition, and he called the uh, Constituent Assembly, and he drafted the Constitution. So what he wanted to do with this new vote of confidence idea was to say, I'm a very popular populist and popular president. If I want to do something and Congress doesn't let me, I get to request it twice, close the Congress, and then uh, let the people, quote-unquote, choose who they want to side with. Either they elect a new opposition Congress or they elect a Congress that lets me rule the country. So that's the, that's the general dynamic. It hasn't happened so far because of it's the nuclear option. And it's interesting because this option to dissolve Congress comes out of Alberto Fujimori, who was a dictator and an autocrat. And yet in this last fall, it was Martin Vizcarra, who I think few people would qualify necessarily as an autocrat, although people were calling it a coup. Um, but, I mean, at the same time, he has expressly said he does not want to continue in power. He is trying to relinquish power so that Peru can move forward. Um, what was your response when he dissolved Congress? Well, first of all, uh, a, a prior issue here is that it's very funny to read what Fujimorista congressmen were saying in the Constituent Congress of 92 uh, with what Fujimorista congressmen uh, were saying now. It's as if Fujimorismo had done a 180. You know, in, in, in 1992, it was Fujimoristas that wanted the president, which was Fujimori, to be able to dissolve Congress because it was, uh, they were in control. They had the power. This time around, uh, the Fujimoristas have, have 
fought a, a war of attrition with Vizcarra. So they, they, they arrived, they, they weakened themselves. They arrived at Congress with a huge majority and through attrition and protecting corrupt congressmen and choosing their battles tactically instead of strategically, they arrived to a position where they were a lot more weakened. Um, so they argued that closing Congress the second time would be a coup. I personally don't think it is. Uh, mostly because of the, and I think this is the majority position at this point. Um, I don't know if it started being the majority position, but I think it is now. Um, I think it's not a coup uh, because of what the debates in 92 say about what was the idea behind the dissolution of Congress. It was a conflict resolution mechanism where the people were meant to choose between Congress and the executive. And if we believe that, then we need to make sure that the provisions of the Constitution mean something. If we allow um, Congress to just say yes every time it's requested confidence, and then in practice doesn't deliver on that confidence, then that section of the Constitution is just a piece of paper. It has no content, it has no validity, it has no pull. So that goes against proper constitutional interpretation. So I'm not going to say that this is universally accepted, but I will say it has become the predominant opinion. Well, and then also, I mean, just in recent weeks, the Constitutional Court affirmed Vizcarra's move to dissolve Congress as, in fact, legal. So, and the opposition, the Fujimoristas have recognized that. Even if they don't agree, they'll say, we'll abide by this ruling um, and go forward with it. As we're talking about the political landscape in Peru right now, it's worth just noting that Fujimoristas in the early 90s, we're following Alberto Fujimori, um, but now they are most, that legacy is mostly carried by his daughter Keiko, who narrowly lost the presidential election in 2016 and now is under investigation on corruption charges and money laundering charges. And who has divided the party in two factions, right? The, the Kenji, her, her brother faction, and the Keiko faction, because there's been this like brotherly war to see who is better able to uh, fulfill the wishes of the true leader of the Fujimorista party, which is Alberto Fujimori. And I think that's very clear that he's still like, meeting with congressmen from jail. It will take a very long time, I think, before Fujimoris are not part of Peruvian politics. Actually, Fujimoristas have always had around 30% of the electorate. Now they are 15 to 18%, depending on who you read. Mm-hmm. That is huge. <laughs> That's true, yes. So let's talk about that then as we look ahead to Sunday's vote. One number that is in the news a lot is 5%, which broadly speaking is the threshold of the national vote parties need to get in order to secure seats in Congress. And at the same time, right now, according to at least uh, this Ipsos poll conducted at the end of December, voter apathy is at a record high right now. And about half of Peruvian voters either say they don't plan to vote for anybody or they don't know who they're going to cast their vote for. It's about a third say they plan not to vote for anybody and 17% don't know. It's also worth mentioning that voting in Peru is mandatory and voters are fined about $25 if they don't show up. So how might this apathy affect the composition of the incoming legislature? So I think the main difference of this election and normal elections in in Peru uh, is that usually it is a presidential and a congressional election at the same time. 
So the image of the president himself pulls votes for his party. So that no longer exists. No one is running for president. So that makes this a very weird election because you don't have this cult of personality idea of you need to vote for Alejandro Toledo's party or Alberto Fujimori's party. You're just voting for people that in most cases we don't know. There's very little information on, on congressional candidates at this point and scandals keep popping up here and there. So that is one factor that might diffuse the voting. You don't really need to vote for your presidential candidate's party anymore. You can choose. For the first time, you can choose. But if you, if you dilute the vote too much, then yes, you, you won't reach that 5%. So we're seeing a, a reallocation of, of votes. Like I was saying, Fujimoristas don't have 30% of the vote. The left-wing vote has been divided between two different left-wing parties, Juntos por el Perú and Frente Amplio, each polling at around 3%, so it's not exactly sure that they'll make it past the 5% number. But we should remember that in Peru, because voting is mandatory, most people choose their vote last minute. Traditionally, there's people, people talking about who they're going to vote in the lines to vote, and they decide there. It sounds a little yeah. like um, caucusing in the United States. <laughs> You have a room yeah. with everybody talking and trying to sway people to their side. Also, one little thing, if the null voting doesn't go down, that benefits the parties with a larger majority of the vote because we don't have constituencies. We don't elect one representative for a specific county. We elect lists. So the more blank and uh, null votes that exist, the more that the percentage of that specific party will be widened. So if, if a party receives 15% of the total votes, but there's only 50% valid votes, that means that they will need to extend their percentage to cover for those null and invalid votes. So the, the more blank votes, the better for Partido Morado and Fujimorista. Mm-hmm. And so right now, if there are, I believe, 12 parties represented in Congress and there are 21 parties running in these upcoming elections, do you think there will be more parties represented in the incoming Congress or do you think we'll go down? Well, the previous Congress benefited a lot from this list system that we have uh, to inflate the Fujimoristas percentage of the vote. They had a, a absolute majority in Congress, uh, which meant that there was less space for other parties. I actually think that because Fujimoristas received this amount of power and were unable to produce any single major political reform or, or any major piece of legislation because they were so eager to try to keep the government from passing their own legislations, that people are a little bit disappointed with traditional parties at this point. And so I expect that will dilute the vote enough for other parties to be included, and especially parties that maybe weren't that powerful before. Two main surprises, I would say, are Partido Morado, which is polling at 10 to 15 percent as well, in, depending on the poll. Uh, that is center party with a, that was banned from participating in the 2016 election and, and is a new party of, of newcomers, basically, very unideological. And then Acción Popular, which is a very old party that is associated to the figure of, of President Fernando Belaunde, who was president of Peru in the 80s and in the 60s. And he has this image of a very clean, very good president, perhaps too good. He was a little bit like Pepe K in that he didn't see things happening around him, including you know, the terrorism threat of the 1980s. But his party is still associated with that image, even though in practice, it's really not that anymore. Like the, the Belaunde family is not really powerful within the party anymore. And 
and, and it has been co-opted by more conservative ideological forces like uh, Victor Andres Garcia Velaunde and, and uh, other congressmen. So they are receiving a large quantity of the votes, mostly because it's a, it's a safe bet, as in it's a party that has existed for a long time. People think they know it, and it's not Fuerza Popular, the Fujimorista party, or APRA, the, the other party, or the left-wing parties that, are, that have a highly ideological you know, charge. So, but, but the problem is that nobody knows how Acción Popular is going to govern. It was interesting, when I was looking at that Ipsos poll, they asked people who were supporting the various parties, what was their main reason for supporting that party? And it was a different reason for every party. Um, you know, some people wanted a party because they have experience. Another other people wanted a party because it had new ideas. So it seems like voters are really all over the place with what they're going for. The problem is that Peru, as with most Latin American countries, I would say, is premised on an ideological debate between left and right. Like in the, in the matrix of things, in the, in the ideological matrix, you can either have a debate on liberals and conservatives, like the US, or you can have a debate on economic right or left. Peru has traditionally had a, a right versus left economic debate as the main driving force behind politics. But when you ask people how they define themselves, the majority of the population says, I don't care, I just want growth. I don't care if it's from the left or the right. But that option, that middle ground option doesn't exist. In, in, or, or hasn't existed. People are hoping that that's what Partido Morado is going to become now or what PPK would represent in the previous election but didn't. So when in 2016 there was a very big break in how the political debate happened uh, or, or occurred in Peruvian politics because for the first time in history, the right had two candidates. There was uh, PPK, the liberal right, and Keiko Fujimori, the conservative right. And so the right split in two. Um, so people that were more liberally inclined, that were in favor of you know, human rights and, and you know, LGBT rights, minority rights, but liked an uh, orthodox liberal economic system, sided with Pepeca. And people who wanted you know, anti-gender, anti-LGBT, they sided with Keiko. Uh, so that meant that for the first time in history, the Peruvian debates changed from left to right to liberal conservative. Left-wing parties with the liberals against the Fujimorista conservatives and APRA. So th that was a very uh, game-changing opportunity that was missed uh, when Congress was dissolved. Because instead of continuing on that path and creating a larger front around issues that uh, people care about, social issues, human rights, uh, and diverting away from the economy and having liberal left and liberal right wings unite and say, okay, let's move past our economic differences. Let's find uh, cohesion around minorities and human rights and you know, development, indigenous peoples. Um, instead of doing that, as soon as the Fujimorista threat was eliminated because Congress was dissolved, that alliance broke down completely. And so now we're back at this left versus right debate. But it's a, a weird left versus right debate because now that people kind of have seen that Fujimoristas are the ultimate rival to a liberal uh, Peru, um, options like Partido Morado are becoming a little bit more interesting. And that's why they're gaining more votes because they represent that unideological silent majority, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, in Peru. And so... Yeah, more radical parties are a little desperate. Mm -hmm. and, and you, in that view, it's Partido Morado 
and other sort of more centrist parties sort of represent this this idea of the provings who are not interested in the side-to-side debate. They just want to get things done. And they're hoping that par- parties like Partido Morado, which is also Purple Party, obviously, in English, that's their hope that they can represent that. And, and it's purple because it's what you get when you mix red and blue. They specifically are ad- a- a- addressing that uh, need for center options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but, but the more people vote for a center option, the less people are going to vote for a left-wing party that wants to change the constitution, and the less people are going to vote for a Fujimorista party that wants to delete the word gender from program legislation. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, and I, I'm a little bit pessimistic because of the recent things that have been happening to, to the leader of, of the Purple Party, Julio Guzman, he, he doesn't seem to be a very inspiring leader. But uh, hopefully this, this idea of a center can start developing. And I think that would be very, a very good way of escaping this ideological debate. Now, a few days ago, I noticed you had tweeted that the Constitution of 1993 isn't perfect, but that you believe the problems are caused by more, quote, political indolence and contempt of elected officials, unquote, than by bad constitutional text. How optimistic are you that these elections might start to change this? Like, do you think 2020 could be a turning point? So my, my views on this have, have progressively become less and less enthusiastic. Um, because when I, was, uh, when I was originally seeing the dissolution of Congress process, I could see people I usually, I, I was used to disagreeing with very vocally, very intensely on the, on the left, on my same side. And I was hoping that we could start, you know, looking beyond... Uh, this economic divide in Peru and start focusing on, you know, a, a liberal alliance, if you will, to, to pass political reform, uh, which is what we need. We have a constitution that allows Congress to basically get rid of any president, what president it wants, so long as they have enough votes to authorize a, a vacancia, which is translated as impeachment, but really is a little bit different. But I think that, that there was a possibility for this moving beyond the economic debate that would have helped political reform. But because that is now not going to be the case or likely not going to be the case, and the Purple Party is not exactly a... Um, we don't know how they're going to govern. We don't know what their politics are going to be. Uh, they're, they're a little bit too much in the middle for now. I don't think 2020 is going to be the, the year that things are going to change. I think future historians might look to this year where and say maybe this where where seats were planted, but I'm not hoping for a very efficient Congress that will pass, you know, very necessary reforms for Peru. I think the debate will be stuck again in, in economic issues and not move past that and start producing the kinds of change the population needs. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, so, we're going to end up like Chile. We said this Congress is only going to be in session for 18 months until the end of July 2021. What do you think then in that context would be a reasonable goal for this Congress to achieve in that time? I think that the recent impasse between Congress and the president gave us a very clear outlook of what was wrong with the Constitution. I think the, the vacancia, the impeachment procedure, is absurd. There's no due process involved in this procedure. That needs to go. I think the process for dissolution of Congress should be eventually eliminated. And instead of that, to have a two chambers of Congress, right now we only have one, that renews at least one chamber every two to three years, instead of having these very long five-year periods that are seen as 
an impunity way out for, for people who run for Congress. And I think that they would find a, a willing executive for those reforms. So if we're able to amass a sufficient majority to push through those very structural reforms, I think that would be fantastic. My fear, though, is that what will happen is that either the conservatives will gain sufficient votes to block any such reforms, or we will be stuck with this debate about whether changing the economic chapter of the Constitution again and not move to the more necessary structural reforms. Obviously, this has been, there's been so much activity in Peru and really a lot of stresses and challenges to the Peruvian constitution. How would you say Peru's constitution has held up? Do you think Peru's constitution has been shown to be more or less resilient compared to others in Latin America and around the world? So I think the Peruvian constitution is abstract enough to allow for diverse ways of structuring the government and structuring the economy. And on that regard, I think the, the, the result, the, the factual result of what the Constitution has accomplished has been a reduction of poverty, has been an increase uh, in economic stability. I think the soil is a very stable currency. We have not had a recession in, since 1997. And I think it allows for many of the social transformations that we need to see nowadays that have not happened in Peru just yet. Like We do not need to change our constitution to pass a law regulating same-sex marriage, for example. Other countries don't have that. But at the same time, on, on that regard, I think that the constitution has done its job. But I do think, uh, like I was saying in that tweet that you read, that there is discontent in the population of all of Latin America, or at least South America, that that growth, that overarching macroeconomic stability, GDP growth, poverty reduction, is not enough. Let me put it this way. In Peru, you can live a very comfortable life unless you need the government for anything. The second you need the police, the second you need a doctor, the, the second you need schooling, you will be disappointed. Services will be bad. There's horror stories from the medical sector and people that go needing an amputation of the right leg and they're amputated the left leg. Public services are horrendous. I ask my friends abroad that they don't need to send me letters for the holidays because they will not be delivered by the postal office. So that needs to change. The left sees that as the result of a too small a government that has not been able to pay for, the, for those public services adequately. I don't think that's the case because all of those exceptions, I guess, are, are included in the economia social de mercado principle, the idea that the government invests in, in, public, in the public sector. So I don't think that, is, that the constitution itself is the problem. I do think that we need to start investing more money. Like we, we are a country that is traumatized by the hyperinflation of the 80s. And we seem to think that we need to hold on to every single piece of money that we see. We are one of the countries with the largest uh, reserves in South America other than Brazil. And Brazil is a different animal. So we have money to spend and we need to spend it on these social services so that there's more social mobility and so that the people can know that they're not just numbers. It's easy to say to someone, oh, poverty was reduced, you should be happy. Like, yeah, but what does poverty mean in Peru? If you're middle class, you're still not getting good services. So that needs to change. So the, the, I would say the constitution has done what a constitution should do. It's the political community that has fallen short, that hasn't done the, the revolutionary reforms that the country needs. All right. So we will be watching Sunday. We will see how this all plays out. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we'll be sure to be keeping an eye on Peru. Sure. It's been a pleasure. And, and thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by Louisa Lenny. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Please take a moment to subscribe, share, and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>